Good morning. Before we get into the word this morning, I want to just bring a couple of announcements to your attention. We'd already mentioned it at the beginning, our membership class. I wanted to show you a little bit what we're going to be going through. The Evangelical Free Church of America is an association of like-minded churches. It started as individual Bible study groups broke away from state control in Norway and Sweden. And then in order to have religious freedom, they came to the United States as religious pilgrims. And from there then, this movement that we know today as the Evangelical Free Church started, moved across the United States, and now it's 1,600 churches. And we're going to look at that, some of the history of who we are as the Evangelical Free Church of America. So that's one manual that we'll go through, and it'll be fun to look at the history of how God has guided over the last 140 years what we now know today as the Evangelical Free Church. We'll also receive a book called I'm a Church Member by Tom Rayner that just talks about some biblical principles of what does it look like to be a faithful church member. What does the New Testament call us to as we join a church, which we are asked to do because we're part of God's family. We're part of the body of Christ. And then a third one is from a group called Nine Marks by Mark Dever. Why should I join a church? Some principles on just what is the, the, the process, but also what is the privilege, responsibility, and blessing of being an active church member. And so we're going to look at these resources because we're not saved unto ourselves. We're saved into the family of God, and then we're, to, we're called to reflect that by identifying and being engaged with a local representative of the family of God, and, and that's what we call the local church. So we'll be looking at that over the next few weeks, starting next next. Sunday. Now, the second thing I want to bring to your attention is just the time of celebration that we had Friday night at our sister church, the Evangelical Free Church of Paradise. It's been five years since the fire took place in Paradise, and the Reach Global, which is our outreach ministry of the Evangelical Free Church, started a movement in Paradise to work with our sister church there and with partnering churches that would come in for weeks or days at a time to help with rebuilding to replant a church and we've reached the five-year mark where that church now has been replanted and is growing and is averaging close to 140 people on sunday mornings so there was a time of celebration of what god has done and literally bringing beauty out of these ashes and we had a chance of celebrating and hearing testimonies of what god has done lives that have been touched um homes that have been rebuilt, but more importantly, lives that have been rebuilt. And our sister church is on the forefront of this town that is growing and is going to have an ever-grading impact on that community. What was so encouraging was not only the testimonies that came up again and again, but how often the church in Oroville was mentioned as being a friendly and supporting sister church. And so I just want to say thank you, church, that from the beginning, we've reached out We've reached deep into our wallets. We've shared from our resources. Our youth group went up several times for summer ministries. Uh, we've had par- volunteers that went up on Serve Saturdays. We helped support Pastor Art with our finances the first year because when the church fell apart, he had no salary. Uh, all of the glory goes to God. But it is also good for us to recognize when we see God doing a good thing. And so it was just a great time of celebration. So continue to pray for our sister church in paradise. Believe it or not, Paradise now has grown to 9,000 people, which is an amazing growth. It got down to a few hundred after the fire, and they're projecting much larger growth. And our our sister church is well-placed to be a blessing to that community, as it's already been. And so it's just so fun to see partnership and ministry that works, that brings glory to God. Uh, This is also something that's being shared now throughout our denomination of what happened in, in Paradise and how different churches came together to help rebuild a town, rebuild a church, and rebuild lives. Well, before we get into the Word of God, I encourage you to make sure your cell phones are turned to silence so that we don't have any interruptions. I know I say that every week, and and all too often, yet a phone still goes off during the service. And so please make sure that they're turned off because we're live streaming, and we want to make sure we don't have any interruptions of what we're trying to do as we concentrate on the Word of God this morning. And for those of you joining us online, Good morning. Thank you for being with us. And we encourage you 
where you are as you gather with us where we are around the throne of God's grace. Have your Bibles open to Matthew 17 and let's study the Word of God together. The Duke of Wellington is best remembered as a general who defeated Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo in 1815. But before that, he had already gained the reputation as a great military strategist. He had served many years in India, and he was in charge of negotiations after the Battle of Assei that happened in 1803. And what came out of this battle was negotiations for who would control what territory and who would oversee this area, and it greatly established Wellington as a, as a wise military strategist, but also solidified the influence of England in India. Well, during the negotiations that were following after this battle, an emissary from one of the Indian rulers, one of the groups that was fighting for control of these areas, wanted to know what territories would be ceded to his chief after the negotiations were over. Now, this chief had been opposing Wellington, but this emissary tried everything he could think of to try to get Wellington to divulge his secrets ahead of time. Who's going to get control of what area, what resources, who's going to be calling the shots here and here? And finally, he offered Wellington a large sum of money. Well, in response to that, Wellington said, well, can you keep a secret? And all excited, the man eagerly said, yes. And then Wellington leaned in and said, so can I. <laughs> it's important in military, economic and political matters to keep secrets and to hold confidences. And I would say it's also important in gospel ministry. Certain things just need to be held close so that gospel ministry can go forward with integrity and with power. Because we know that knowledge is power, but both knowledge and power, if used unwisely, can lead to bad results. These things need to be used wisely, with diligence, and with great integrity. And that idea comes into play in the passage that we will look at this morning in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, in the past few weeks, we've seen that Jesus led his three, these three apostles up on the mountain and gave them a great and powerful spiritual experience where they saw the Lord Jesus Christ transfigured. They got to catch a glimpse of the glory of Christ. His glory had been veiled during the incarnation, but it was a glory that he had from eternity past that he shared in the presence of the Father. He veiled that by taking on humanity, came to live among us, and just at times, the apostles and his followers would get glimpses of what Jesus is like. And they got to see what Jesus looks like now the right hand of the Father, and what we will see when we see Jesus, when we meet him face to face in his glorified and exalted state. He had been metamorphosized. That's actually the Greek word that was used here, the changing of form. Uh, and as we looked at last week, this word also applies to believers. And we looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, where the very same word is used, that we being transformed from glory to glory, the word there is metamorphosized, that we who are in Christ are going to be changed more and more into the image of Christ as he works in and through us and so that we will reflect perfectly his glory and be changed into his image. And because that is true, because that is the hope that is before us, we need to be growing. We need to be advancing. We need to be becoming more mature in our Christian obedience, have greater understanding of the things of God. And if those things are not happening, then that's time for a heart check. What is happening to where we are not growing in Christ? What is happening to where we're not making the progress that we should because growth is normal in the Christian life? Well, that experience we saw was life-changing for Peter, for James, and for John. And though there would be bumps on the road ahead, and we're going to see those bumps more and more as we move closer to the events of Calvary on the cross, we do see that for these three men, they would continue in faithful and fruitful and joyful ministry to the Lord Jesus Christ, being used by him to help grow the church in the first century. And the impact that they had, they still have, through the writings that God the Holy Spirit inspired them to write and through the example that we see in the Gospels. So they've gone up on the mountain. They've seen this great experience. 
it overwhelms them. They're not even sure what it is they're seeing. And, and Peter starts to, to blabber on when he should have been quiet and just give reverential worship. But what would be the impact of all that in their immediate situation? Jesus had already made it clear that they couldn't stay on the mountain. He'd already made it clear that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer at the hands of the Gentiles, at the hands of the religious leaders. He must die. He must be raised on the third day. And so they can't stay on the mountain. They need to go back down the mountain. And as they follow Christ, they need to hear the gospel of Paul, as we all do, to continue to deny themselves, to take up their cross, and to follow Jesus. With all that then, it gets us caught up now to where we can go this morning as we get to the passage we're going to look at, finishing out this particular part of chapter 17, Sons, honor of God and his holy word, I invite you to stand as we read our passage for this morning. Verses 9 to 13 of Matthew chapter 17. And the precious word of God says, And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. God has given us this word this morning to learn more about what it is to follow the transfigured Christ and what, what is coming in the events that ultimately would lead to the procurement of our salvation. May the Holy Spirit bring these words close to our hearts and help us apply them. In Jesus' name. And let's pray. Now, Father, we turn to you, the only one to whom we can turn to get a sure and true word. So would you teach us now? In this word that you have given, would you stir our hearts? Would you help us to grow? Would you help us to know, to know you and to know you more through your word as your spirit teaches us? In Jesus' name, amen. So they go up on a mountain and Peter sees all that's going on and he's not sure what to say. So rather than saying nothing, he decides to try to form a temporary situation. He wasn't right in doing so. We saw that last week. He had to carry about, uh, he had to receive a divine rebuke from the Father because Jesus said, I have to go. It was that Greek word day, which means a divine necessity. He had to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. He had to accomplish what he came to do, which was to be the perfect substitutionary, atoning sacrifice for the people of God. And Peter himself needs to see the bigger picture. He needs to see that it's not about his own felt needs and his felt desires. It's not about his particular relationship with the Lord. It's about what God wants to do for his people that will bring about glory for his name. So the transfiguration should cause our hearts to rejoice because we see a reflection. We see the true nature of Jesus. His true nature shown through. He's no longer being veiled and after this great moment, it would be veiled again as he would go forward to the events of the cross and his death, burial, and resurrection, which then, of course, would then reveal a greater glory of who he is. And he's going to return one day. He went to heaven in his glorified body. And we have the promise that he will return one day in the same way in which he went, and we will all behold him. And what a day that is going to be. To be sure, the transfiguration was a glimpse of the glory of God, but it wasn't just a glimpse of the glory of God. I would say it was also a taste of heaven. It gives us an idea of what we have to look forward to. And I hope that your minds and hearts have been stirred over these past few weeks to say, if this is what Jesus is like, I just want to live for him. I long to see him, and I want to see him on that day without shame. And so I'm going to live in such a way that my life will be this offering, this outpouring of gratitude to him so that we may experience him more and more, moment by moment, that we might know him as we have sung and know him more and live a life of gratitude, a life of 
loving obedience, a life of divine joy as the Holy Spirit operates these truths in our hearts. We saw that once the transfiguration was over, Jesus was there standing alone. We saw that's appropriate because he does stand alone. All of the law and the prophets point to him. All of the sacrifices and the offerings point to him. All of the promises and the fulfillments point to him. He stands alone. And he is the one alone who can bring us into the presence of the Father. For he is the way, the truth, and the life. So now we get to move on and progress in our understanding of what's happening here in Matthew 17. And we get to our first point now that you can fill in your blank in your outline as we look at point number one, which is a clear command. And I hope that you'll be taking notes this morning so that you can reflect upon this passage later in the week, but also share these ideas with someone else. Be that river of blessing through which the truths of God flow so that somebody else is blessed by what you're hearing and learning this morning. We begin with a clear command. Let me see it in verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. They had seen this majestic revelation of the true nature of Jesus, and it's come to an end. And now these three men must go back down the mountain. Yes, they've experienced a mountaintop experience, but all too quickly they must come back down to reality. Isn't that our common lot as humans? We can have a great experience at a weekend retreat, a great dinner with a friend, a great outing of some sort. We can have a great victory in life, a great achievement. We've accomplished a great goal, but all too quickly we tumble back down to earth in the reality that there's still more yet to accomplish, more to do, more victories to achieve, more obstacles to overcome. Sooner or later, we have to continue to live in the reality of the valley below because there are people all around us that need to hear what we know, see what we've experienced, and can grow in what we have. Peter, James, and John understandably are amazed, awestruck, bewildered, maybe even confused. What has just happened? It seems almost beyond words. And Jesus, knowing their state and knowing the nature of man, takes charge and commands them not to tell anyone the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And we might be tempted to ask, well, why? Wouldn't these men just be bursting at the seams to tell others what they have seen? I mean, after all, this is a great experience. So I think we need to do a little thought experiment this morning. Let's think of ourselves. We know how we are when we have a little bit of secret information, when we get the inside scoop, when we get that hot tip, we're eager to share what we have heard with others. But do we always handle that information correctly? Do we always handle it wisely? Do we consider the implications of what we are doing? Or are we simply doing that to make ourselves look a little better? Like, you know, I got the connections. I got the knowledge. Jesus is aware of some of the temptations that they would be facing. So he needs to tamper down their enthusiasm until they understand what it is that they've seen. They're able to handle it correctly. What is its implications? What will it mean long term? And I'm so glad that the Lord in his goodness and providence puts things like this in the scriptures that show us for what we are. And how we have those same needs to encounter Jesus and that we have the same need for wisdom. We have the same need to grow in maturity. It's hard if you've experienced something and you want to share it, but oftentimes it's a wise thing to do. And in this case, it was the wise thing for Jesus to command them not to speak until it was time. You know, there are some times in our lives we need to act as the philosopher from Scotland, Thomas Carlyle, says, he who has a secret should not only hide it, but hide that he has it to hide. Are we handling the things of God with wisdom and with integrity and with intelligence? And there were certainly many questions that the apostles, these three men, would have had. Certainly comments that would have gone back and forth between Jesus and the apostles as they came down the mountain. The Bible doesn't give us everything that we would like to know or tell us everything that has happened or every word and every conversation. John says that if such were the case, Right? The whole world would be filled with the books that could be written. But the Bible does give us 
everything we need to know about Jesus, about what he has done, about who he is, about what he will do, about what is to come. And the main thing here is that Jesus is warning the apostles not to talk about what they have just seen until the appropriate time. I mean, think about it. Peter's in the midst of this experience, and even while this experience is happening, he doesn't fully understand what's going on, has to be rebuked by God the Father. How much more those who have even less information, less ability to understand what's going on, will they understand it? Will they get it? Will they comprehend what has happened? As R.C. France reminds us, as long as Jesus still needed to accomplish the work for which he came, which would bring him to the cross, to the grave, to the resurrection, to the ascension, until he has accomplished all those things, he doesn't want his disciples and he doesn't want the masses in Jerusalem to be enamored by the glory that they had seen on the mountain. Already in first century Palestine, the fever pitch was high of a, of a redeemer, of a Messiah that would come and deliver the people from Roman oppression, from Roman occupation, from Roman taxation. The people were looking for a military leader, a victorious leader. They wanted the glory now. And Jesus says the glory won't come now, at least not in its fullness. There's still some things that need to happen before the glory can be fully shown. So Jesus commands these three to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Another reference to the suffering of the Son of Man. Jesus said, the Son of Man must suffer, die, and be raised. He'll say it again. He said, already has said it many times. And after the resurrection, when the apostles see Jesus in his glorified body, and Jesus prepares them for what is to come, then they'll be able to talk about what they'd seen on the mountain. And as we saw last week in the Gospel of John chapter 1 and in 2 Peter, John and Peter do talk about what they've seen on the mountain. But Jesus must first die. If he's going to raise, be raised, he must die. But he knew what was before him in the immediate, what he would have to go through, and he knew what was before him that would be the result of his suffering. We know that because we have it recorded for us in Hebrews chapter 12. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, the joy of returning to the glory that he had with the Father before the foundation of the world, endured the cross, despising the shame, and as a result is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He knew he had to go to the cross so that there would be a crown. And you know, friends, we have this great hope that one day we will have the resurrected bodies like what Jesus had, that we will reflect perfectly the glory of Jesus, that we will have not only perfected souls but glorified bodies. But that's not for right now. For right now, it is taking up our cross, dying daily and following Jesus. It's putting to death the deeds of the flesh. It's putting on the things of righteousness. It's doing what we know we're supposed to do as ambassadors and as witnesses to, to, to Christ and as witnesses to the truth because we know one day we're going to have the glory, the glorified bodies in his presence. And so we follow then in the similar path of Jesus who knew the glory that was to come but went first through the cross. And so we have to first go through this time of suffering and trial and overcoming and applying salvation to our lives, knowing that one day the mockings will be over. The misunderstandings will come to an end. The shame that we feel will be completely done away with and we will behold Jesus face to face. So these three apostles, they can't tell others yet because the people are not yet ready to receive. They don't yet have eyes to see, minds to understand. The kingdom of heaven has come, but not in the way that they were expecting. It's come in quietly, transforming heart after heart. It's transformed family after family, tribe after tribe, nation after nation. And then one day, it'll come in its fullness when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And so we have this clear command. Wait until you have a better understanding. And then Jesus talks to them about Elijah and the restoration. Elijah and the restoration. Verse 10. 
And the disciples ask him, then why did the scribes say, sorry for the typo, that first Elijah must come? And why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? The apostles couldn't ask about what they had just seen, but because of what they had just seen, there would be an important question that they would have. But Lord, isn't Elijah to come first? That's what the scribes are teaching. And they're considered the teachers of the law. It was the common expectation in that day. The thinking would go something like this. Elijah must come before the Messiah. But Elijah has not come. You say you're the Messiah. Are you really the Messiah? How do these things fit together? In a sense, Elijah did come on the Mount of Transfiguration. Is that what Jesus is referring to? So we see the certain logic that they're wrestling with here. They have an expectation of this before this, but they're not sure they've seen this yet. So can they have this? And so Jesus wants to put them at ease. He's a good teacher. He knows how to handle his disciples. And so he says, yes, Elijah must come. Verse 11, he answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. So why must Elijah come? Was certainly the common thinking of the day. It's what the scribes taught. It's what the people expected. And we also have the promise in the last words of the Old Testament. Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, which read, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great an awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will... I want you to pay attention to the words here because they're going to come into play as we look later on and what is happening. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Elijah in some way must come to prepare the way of the Lord. And when he comes, the result will be families turning back to the Lord together, families being put back together, the people returning to the truth. But if they do not, there's a clear promise of destruction and judgment. And when these words were released from the mouth of Malachi, the people of God didn't know that they would have to wait 400 years before they would see the fulfillment of these words. They waited for the return. They longed for the return of Elijah. To them, it would signal the arrival of the Messiah in the day of the Lord. And at their, their practice of Passover, it was common for them to even leave an empty chair, reserving it for Elijah, saying, maybe next year Elijah will be present and we'll know the Messiah is here. It's still a common practice in the Seder meal today that Jews practice. Sadly, the majority of the Jewish people still have not seen that both Elijah and the Messiah have returned. They have come. And we long for the day then when we see the fulfillment, when their eyes will be opened, and they will come in mass to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. That day has not yet come, but we pray for its arrival. Elijah must come, Jesus said. And then he goes on and says, Elijah did the apostles are a bit confused. They were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. Peter had already given a great confession of faith. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, you didn't get this from yourself, Peter. This came from the Father in heaven. And the Father in heaven proves it on the Mount of Transfiguration. It says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So Jesus pronounces... The answer to help with their confusion and says, Elijah has come, verse 12. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him. So, on the one hand, we could say, in a sense, Elijah did come on the Mount of Transfiguration, and Peter and James and John somehow figured out that it was Elijah. They recognized that it was Moses. We're not told how they recognized it was Elijah and Moses, but that they did. I think. Inferentially, this shows that we're going to recognize each other in our glorified states because if they were able to recognize Moses and Elijah, well, then we're going to recognize each other. But that's not the main point here. If that's what Jesus wanted to say and that's all he wanted to say, he would have said it. But it would only have been useful to these three men. So he goes on. He wants to make it clear that Elijah has come, but they, 
the masses of people, the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Romans, the Gentiles, they did not recognize him, and they mistreated him. So we'll jump quickly to the conclusion then. And then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Now we'll go back and say, how did they arrive at that conclusion? Well, they had some help perhaps with some signs that are already in the Gospels. We're told in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 4 that John the Baptist came wearing clothes made of camel's hair and a leather, wearing a leather belt. Well, that's a description very similar to what we see of Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8. There are many other similarities between the person and the life of Elijah and the person and life of John the Baptist. Elijah spent a good deal of time in the wilderness in his preaching. So did John, who began in the wilderness, and the people went out to him saying, Who are you? Both men experienced great persecution from the political leaders of their day. Both of them suffered periods of doubt and disappointment. Elijah, after he had a great victory on Mount Carmel, a tremendous victory over the prophets of Baal, but then goes off in a period of doubt. John in prison, after preaching righteousness and preaching truth, finds himself in prison. There are similarities between these two righteous men called servants of the living God, even prophets of the living God. But Jesus needs to make it clear. Who is he talking about here? And so he gets to the conclusion, Elijah was John. I tell you, said Elijah, has already come, and they did not recognize him. And then verse 13, the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Now, we need to dig a little deeper, because we need to make some things clear. John recognized that he had his own identity. In the Gospel according to John, chapter 1, there's a conversation that's going on between religious leaders and John. We'll pick it up in chapter 1, verse 21. And they asked him, John, what then? Are you Elijah? And he answered, I am not. And as the conversation goes on, they say, well, we need to know who you are because we're going to go back and tell the people who sent us who you are. And John says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah John was not a reincarnation of Elijah. John was his own man. And yet, Jesus, drawing it all together to help us understand, had already said earlier in Matthew chapter 11, and if you are willing to accept it, he, John, is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So how does this work? Well, this is why we have the beauty of a library that God has given us. 66 individual books that he has given to help give us all that we need to know for life and salvation about who Christ is and what he has done. And this, this library works together to give us the full picture. So we find the answer to our question in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 1. There's a priest named Zechariah. His opportunity comes to offer the sacrifices in the temple. While he is there, an angel appears to him. The angel says, you're going to have a son. And says in chapter 1 of Luke, verse 16 and 17, and I want you to pay attention to the words here. This is the angel speaking to Zechariah. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Do you see the connection with Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, of how it's coming together? This prophecy was fulfilled by a person who came in the spirit and power of Elijah, which, of course, is the power and, and Holy Spirit of God himself. And so John the Baptist came, chosen by God, raised up for this purpose, and he did exactly what he was sent out to do. He prepared the way for the people to know that the Lord is coming. He preached righteousness. He warned of the coming judgment. He led the people to a baptism of repentance, this time of, rep of pre uh, preparation where they would repent of their sins. They would be washed as if cleansed and be prepared then for the coming of the Lord. He was the forerunner of the Lord. He came and the Spirit empowered Elijah. 
Now, in the history of the church, there have been these different groups that have arisen claiming to carry the mantle of Elijah. There are many of them even today who claim that their leader is the Elijah who was to come. We had to deal with some of them in our time in West Africa. But to them we say, because we are in good standing with what our Lord Jesus Christ has already said, to them we say, Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him. They rejected Elijah when he came. They rejected the one to whom Elijah pointed. And then we'll see later on that they'll reject the ones who are following the one who was to come. But there's this little enigmatic phrase that, that is early on in this passage. It says that Elijah will come and he must restore all things. What does that mean? Well, if John came in the spirit and power of Elijah and he preached righteousness and he warned of the coming judgment and he said, prepare ye the way of the Lord. He's warning people to repent and turn. His first words were, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We can say that he restores all things in the sense that he spoke of what was to come and the one who would fulfill it all. And he said, turn away and turn to him. Because Jesus, the Messiah, the one who was to come, is the Savior, the King, the Righteous One, the Judge, the Holy One. Whatever damage, destruction, division that sin has caused, the Messiah is the one that's redeeming and restoring and repairing. Because we know that our God is a redeeming God. And in Christ, all that was lost in Adam is being restored. We have the promise of the one who makes all things new, and that is our hope. Elijah has come, but more importantly, the one to whom Elijah was pointing has come. And that makes all the difference. And we get to our next point then, which is Elijah, Christ, and suffering. And now we can complete the rest of this short passage. In verse 12, it says, But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Though the people had been commanded through the prophet Malachi to repent, to turn away, to turn the children to the Father, the Father to the children, to return to the Lord lest judgment comes, the people of Israel did not repent. They did not receive the Messiah. In fact, they outright rejected him, and they rejected his forerunners. And as a result, they suffered the judgment that was also promised through the prophet Malachi, which came between 66 and 70 A.D. when the Roman armies came, destroyed the city of Jerusalem, and destroyed the temple, and brought to a definitive end the Old Covenant age. But Jesus came, and through his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, session, which is seated at the right hand of the Father. He made the way for men and God to be reconciled as he paid the price and prepared the way for the redemption of his people and the redemption of all things. And all that was lost in the fall is redeemed and restored in Christ. That's our hope today. Those who repent, who believe in Christ, will be saved. Their hearts will be turned to righteousness and away from wickedness. But those who continue to reject the Messiah, as the people of Jesus, they will suffer the judgment, the just judgment of their sins and rebellion. So what is Jesus saying here? There's a certain logic to what Jesus has here. First, he brief, uh, briefly speaks briefly of the suffering of Elijah. Elijah has already come, but they did to him whatever they pleased. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Elijah is here. He's come to prepare the way. Therefore, Messiah is here. But the people did not re recognize one nor recognize the other. So what did they do? They imprisoned John for preaching righteousness. They persecuted him and they killed him. They did to him 
whatever they please. You know, there's a parallel in the biblical story. Elijah spoke truth to power, as it will, as he confronted the evil king Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel and said, turn away and turn to the Lord, and they persecuted him. And here we have the one who has come in the power and spirit of Elijah, and he spoke to Herod, and he spoke to Herodias and said, your marriage is illicit, it's illegal, it's immoral, turn from your wicked ways. And he was treated in the same way that Elijah was treated. John came announcing that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And in that way, then, he was showing the way that all things will be restored because they'll be restored to the one who is the truth even the Messiah, but they rejected him. They didn't like the message of John, so they got rid of him. They arrested him. They did all the things they wanted to, killed him in a brutal manner, bringing his head on a platter in the midst of a party. In their evil machinations, they showed the wickedness of their hearts and the evil that reigned in their reactions to the righteousness of God. So Jesus talks about the sufferings of Elijah, and then he'll talk about the suffering of himself, the suffering of Jesus. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. As they did with John, so they will do with the Son of Man. Many of the same men, many of the same groups that were involved in persecuting John the Baptist will be involved in Jesus' death, but many more besides. And we've not yet gotten there in our study of Matthew, but we know the story of Passion Week, where Jesus was arrested, was falsely accused, wrongly tried, unjustly beaten, shamefully treated, then crucified and killed on a cross. They did to him what they wanted. And as they did that, we have the stark warning that the cross reveals the true state of our hearts. In the natural state of man, he is sinful. He's in enmity with God. He doesn't long for the righteous things of God. He's not born in a neutral state. He's born in a state of hostility, dead in his sins and transgressions. And as we're told in Ephesians 2, the rightful object of the holy wrath of God. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, spells it out and makes it clear. In their day, the religious leaders proved the truth of their own sin nature. They saw Jesus. They heard his words. They observed his actions. But because his holiness exposed their sin, their evil, their corruption, their wickedness, they hated him. They sought to put him to death. And then at the divine time, under the control of the Father, they were able to put him to death. But even as they did so, they fulfilled the plan of God. God cannot be outwitted and outmatched. He arranges all things so that his eternal purposes are accomplished. So the scribes were right on the one hand and they were wrong on the other. They were right that Elijah was to come, but they were wrong in their understanding of how that would happen and what it would mean. They're still looking for the earthly glory, the earthly power, the earthly majesty where they were in control. They would be on top. They would have all the power and influence. They didn't understand that true victory that was to come would be over sin, that the true glory to come would be a heavenly glory, an eternal glory a glory that ultimately we'll have the privilege of sharing in as we reflect perfectly the nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw it on the, we saw it on the Mount of Transfiguration, what Christ will be like. But the path to that glorification ran through the cross. But even at the cross, the glory of Jesus was displayed. The victory of Jesus was displayed. The holiness of God was displayed. But it was all displayed in a far different way than what the religious leaders of Jesus' day were expecting. They didn't understand that without the cross, there wouldn't be a crown. So Jesus had to die, just as the forerunner had died. And if it happened to the forerunner, John... And if it happened to the one to whom John pointed, 
then we should expect that it will happen to those who walk after the one who was to come. And so inferentially, we can have the lesson of the suffering of the believer. Elijah suffered because he spoke truth in a challenging situation. John suffered a very similar fate because he spoke truth in a wicked age. Jesus knows that he will also suffer. But he said, I will build my church. But he also said, as I'm building the church, if they've hated you, if they've hated me, they will hate you also. And so the history of the church is full of believers suffering for the gospel. Even as I was preparing to come this morning, I was reading about and praying of Christians in Eritrea and East Africa, imprisoned and beaten for their faith in Jesus Christ. Throughout the history of the church, believers have been mocked and mistreated, suffered injustice, even imprisoned, killed for the for gospel's sake. So if we've been privileged within the story of our own country to have had a period of time of freedom from persecution, we must not think that that is a guarantee that it will continue. The early church considered themselves worthy to suffer for Christ. Are we willing to suffer for Christ? Are we willing to suffer come what may? We're promised in every book of the New Testament that there will be false teachers. We're promised in almost every book of the New Testament there will be persecution. Are we willing to be persecuted for the cause of Christ? You, you know as well as I do, our culture does not want to hear the claims of the gospel. It doesn't want to hear that there's sin, that there's wrongdoing, that there's wickedness, that there is a righteous judgment to come. Just look at our own country and the policies that we have put in place with our cavalier attitude about the sanctity of human life, with our cavalier attitudes about the sanctity of matrimony, about the dignity of people as men and women and boys and girls. Can we really say that we really know that this country will never go through a period of persecution, the Christians in this country? I think it's better to be prepared and never have to suffer than cling on to some false hope that it will never happen to us. And so before we talk about a theology of glory, which we, we can talk about, because we have a theology of glory, we're going to be in the Lord's presence forever and ever, and that should animate the joy in your hearts every day. We have no room to be complacent in our own lives. Maybe we need to talk about a theology of suffering. What is it going to look like in the days ahead to maybe lose your job because of Jesus Christ? Because you'll stand on righteousness. What might it look like in the days ahead to take your kids out of public school because what they're teaching just runs contrary to what you want? Do we have a theology of getting fired if that's what's required? At least we should be preparing for it, even if it never happens. Are we willing to stand for Christ? Because 20 centuries of church history show that suffering is the normal part of the Christian life. We've just been blessed to have a season of favor, but in a culture that is no longer favorable towards us. That doesn't make me pessimistic. It makes me optimistic. Because it's going to, in the midst of that darkness, the, br the light is going to shine all the brighter. And God's going to continue to be at work, and he is going to continue to bring his children home, and he's going to continue to grow the church. And I have the guarantee that we win in the end. So we can stand firm today. So take to heart the warnings and yet the hope that Jesus has given us here. They did it to John and they did it to Jesus. They might just do it to us. But that's why I think we have images like this of the transfiguration that we can hold before our eyes. And we can read the images in the book of Revelation and say, we will gather in the presence of this glorious Christ. And then we can repeat then what one of the early Martyrs in the church said, they can kill us, but they can't really hurt us because we're going to be in the presence of Christ forever. Are you willing to go through that? Do you have a theology of the cross that fits in with your theology of the gospel that gives proper focus and levity to a theology of glory? We will reign one day in the new heavens and the new earth with Christ. 
but we've not yet preached the gospel to all the nations. We've not yet made disciples of all nations. Jesus Christ has not yet come back to set all things right. And so until he does, we persevere. We're willing to suffer. We're willing to do it joyfully. We're willing to proclaim the kingdom of heaven. Now next week, Jesus, as he has led his disciples now from this powerful moment on the mountain, is going to show that he has authority over spiritual darkness, over evil, and he's going to talk about faith. But what are some lessons we can take from today? Did you notice that without me saying it necessarily, prophecies were fulfilled here. At least there was allusion to fulfilled prophecy. My friends, the Bible speaks truth, and what it says will come to pass. And because God's promises are fulfilled, we will trust them in all that they affirm. doesn't mean we'll always understand how they will be fulfilled. It doesn't mean we'll be able to put it in an exact order. We know exactly what's going to happen. We may not. But we will know that they will be fulfilled because of all the fulfilled prophecies we've already seen in the life of Jesus Christ. Secondly, since John accepted and fulfilled his role in the power of the Spirit. So we will accept and fulfill the role God has given to us. We all have a role to play to be that voice of clarity, that word of truth, to clearly share the gospel, to stand for righteousness. And by his power and spirit, we can do it. Because then we have the example of Jesus standing firm and suffering for righteousness, we can stand firm in the power of the Lord. And lastly then, since our Lord Jesus was willing to suffer and die for us, he calls us to be willing and ready to suffer and die for him. To take up our cross, deny ourselves, daily follow him, wherever it might be, because in the 70 years or four score that we have, that's a small comparison to eternity and the presence of God. So we need to invest wisely the time that we have. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, as we contemplate the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, we recognize that if one day we find ourselves in your presence, we know it will be only because of our Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. But, Father, we also know that on that day, we will willingly and gladly and fully fall on our faces and behold your face and worship you like we've never worshipped before. And we will worship that way throughout eternity, enjoying your wonderful presence and the hope that we have. And so, Father, gird us up, strengthen us, encourage us with the fact that the one who has gone before us also holds us and walks with us to safely deliver us to the shores of heaven one day. Therefore, Father, we can be bold and without fear, but with courage and humility go out to a world and say, this is the Christ, follow him. So challenge us, Father, stir us, use us for your glory, but all along the way, Father, empower us with the joy of your Holy Spirit and the joy of our salvation, that we would worship and praise you even in the midst of whatever comes, because you're worthy of it. So teach us and guide us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.